This is Father John Arnold and this is Oro Valley Catholic. The Sunday Mass reading had the Gospel of John and Jesus talking about the Holy Spirit and the gift of the Holy Spirit. You know, Feast of the Ascension is next week and the week after that's Pentecost. We hope to be open for Masses in Pentecost. But how the Gospel of John begins is the same way that the book of Genesis begins and it be, both begin in the beginning. And so both are about God's creation. Genesis about the original creation, abnilo, creation from nothing. But John's gospel is about God recreating the fallen world. You see, the gospel of John witnesses to how God is remaking his creation. John the Baptist, on the first day of the gospel of John, calls God's people to repent. Now, out of this group of disciples that gather around him, John sends two of them, Andrew, the brother of Simon Peter, and another disciple to follow Jesus, whom John the Baptist refers to as the Lamb of God. Then the gospel says this, chapter one. Jesus turned and saw them following him and said to them, what are you looking for? And they said to him, Rabbi, which translated means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, come and you will see. Well, today's gospel is part of Jesus' invitation to come and see. The Holy Spirit inspired John to testify to the Lamb of God. And today, Jesus promises this same indwelling spirit to us as his disciples. Men will do for persons what they will never do for principles. An impersonable principle may make us think, but a philosophy, whatever its merits, too often leaves the heart tepid, especially in crisis. Just because you're intellectually convinced of uh, something doesn't mean it will make any difference in your life. We need to be inspired because we're made for love. Inspired means to be breathed into. Religious and moral principles give us stability, gives us direction, but we need love's inspiration to breathe life into these principles. A crisis in life can destroy principles, but love and trust can bolster us through any crisis. The church holds up in her one hand charity and the sacraments, and on her other hand, faith in the creed. The virtuous Christian is characterized alike by clear knowledge of and a steady adherence to the principles and dogmas of faith and reason, but he's motivated by a steady loyalty to the person of Jesus Christ. The question posed in the gospel today is the relationship between Jesus's commandment to love and the moral life. What reality is like in relationship with God, the God of love and how we ought to live. Those are two very related questions. So first, Jesus makes love the underlying rationale of the moral law. You know, all of us have had a sense of duty. We, you know, having to show up and go do something, whether it's go to work, go to class, go to a family party, whatever it is. But what Jesus says is, if you love me, you'll love my commandments. So what he's saying is that the real motivation for moral behavior is the sense of love of God and love of another person. And love is this powerful inspiration to live the life that uh, God commands us to live. Love, as you know, or love of God, is the first commandment. 
And when Jesus says, if you love me, he is putting himself in the place of the God to whom this commandment is, is directed. And so the second thing that Jesus says, besides, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments, he promises us that he's going to send the advocate, a counselor, what we know is the Holy Spirit. You know, uh, the Holy Spirit has as its root, that word spirit is the same root as the word inspire, which means to breathe into. Because our word spirit essentially translates the Greek pneuma and the Hebrew ruah, both of which mean breath or wind. Jesus said, is that the Spirit will be with you and he will be in you. It's like he breathes his life into you, going back again to that uh, book of Genesis where God breathes his life into Adam and Eve. Jesus, he says, is not going to abandon us at the ascension, which we'll celebrate next week. He said in this gospel, I won't leave you desolate. The Greek word that he used is orphanos, and you get it. It's where our word orphan comes from. He's not going to leave us as orphans. He's not going to leave us fatherless. We are going to be escorted. We're going to live in the Spirit. And this will take place after Jesus departs this life in the Spirit. And that's really what the Acts of the Apostles is about and what St. Paul talks about, this belief that Jesus had left of the Spirit of God with, with us and it's, uh, we say, the third person of the Holy Trinity. And you also remember a couple of weeks ago, in one of the stories of the resurrection, where Jesus appears to the disciples in the upper room. Remember, he says, who sins you forgive are forgiven them. And then he breathes on them and says, receive the Holy Spirit. So this gift of the Spirit is something uh, a phenomena that is the reality of the Christian life. You only get the gift of the Spirit as a Christian. So we grasp the mystery of the Trinity through the power of Jesus' teaching about the Spirit. Because one of the persons of the Trinity now dwells in us and guides us. That's the rationale, as you know, for the church. And it comes from Jesus' lips that the church is a work of the Holy Spirit. So through the Spirit, Jesus is in us and we are in him. Because that abundant life that he talks about isn't a pleasure like you know it in this world. Instead, it's everything good in this world brought up into the life-giving power of the Trinity. So if you remember that at every Sunday Mass, sometimes in between, we recite the Nicene Creed. And it, at the, in its closing passages, it says this, I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son is adored and glorified, who has spoken through the prophets. We do focus on Jesus because he is so compelling to us and we can identify him. But it's the Spirit that dwells amongst us because Jesus tells us, that's who he left us so we would not be fatherless. And so I want to turn to the first reading from the Acts of the Apostles because that is very much about the Holy Spirit and what we do as Catholics in the Sacrament of Confirmation. The Acts of the Apostles, the Samaritans, baptism, 
and the sacrament of confirmation. So in the first reading, the deacon Philip, who was appointed by the apostles, carried the gospel to Samaria, the place in the gospel of John, where Jesus met the Samaritan woman at the well. Samaritans play a pretty significant role in the gospels. And if you remember, the Samaritans are a mix of Israelite and Gentile blood. They come out of that conquest of Israel by the Assyrians. And I've told that story on numerous occasions. The Jewish people of Jesus' time saw the Samaritans as cut off from God. They were apostates. But Philip went to them, and Philip evangelized them. And through the power of his preaching, he brought many Samaritans to the faith. Remember, uh, the woman at the well came to the faith after she talked to Jesus. But here's the catch. As a deacon, Philip did not have the authority to baptize. Hey, we all do, right? But when it comes to this rite of laying on of hands to bestow the gift of the Holy Spirit, he needed to call the apostles, in this case, Peter and John. This is the origin of the sacrament of confirmation, which in the Eastern Church is known as cremation, chrismation, because the laying on of hands is accompanied by an anointing with oil. Chrism is the Greek word for oil. Confirmation is the special grace of the Holy Spirit that can only be conferred by the apostles and their successors, the bishops. Under our canon law, the bishop can sometimes delegate this to a priest, but it has to be delegated. The priest can't really do it, except in very narrow situations. But the reason that the bishop holds the authority is it's an expression of the apostolic mission, which is also part of this story in the Acts of the Apostles. So the key to the sacrament of confirmation, however, is the laying on of hands. Whenever you see the priest or the bishop hold their hands over a person or gifts on the altar, that is always an invocation of the Holy Spirit. Uh, I think some of you are probably old enough, you remember that the bishop would slap you on the cheek uh, because it was supposed to wake you up to the presence of the Spirit because you can sleep through the Holy Spirit, it turns out. In the Western Church, the sacrament of confirmation was detached from baptism because of this symbolism of the apostolic nature. In the Eastern Church, baptism is part of confirmation and first Eucharist for infants. In the Western Church, like at RCIA, if I baptize an adult, then I have to confirm him and give him Eucharist. So we try to maintain this apostolic origins of the sacrament of confirmation, but we Westerners aren't completely consistent about it. But when we talk about the sacrament of confirmation, we're talking about a grace that God grants through that sacrament. And here's a really good thing to remember about being Catholics. God binds himself to the sacraments, but God not, is not in turn bound by the sacraments. And so when this weekend, when we're turning to the Holy Spirit, and we see the power of the Spirit, the importance of the Spirit, so that we can live a moral life with love as, about, as opposed to just being a duty bound like slaves are duty bound. Jesus really criticizes that. How is it that we grow in love, which that gift of grace is conferred on us in the sacrament of baptism? So I want to turn to really where the rubber hits the road for us Catholics. How do we live this great charism of the Holy Spirit? 
love and the commandments, acquired virtues and infused virtues. This is something important and I'm not sure a lot of Catholics appreciate how we think about the moral life, what it means to be moral. Recall, and this goes right back to the beginning, that in the book of Genesis, it says that Adam and Eve fell because they ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That's Genesis chapter two. The healing needed in each of us, in the, right in the human hearts, is that split that we experience in our ability to make choices, how we can choose between good and evil, how we can know the right thing, but still do something that is definitely not the right thing. Every human being by nature has the capacity and predisposition towards virtue, but can fall into vice. That's why people who don't believe in God say, you can be good without God. We would say, in terms of acquired virtues, that is the virtues formed by habit, yeah, you can aspire to some goodness, but it's never a goodness that can take you into heaven. The innate desire for virtue can be converted into habits of virtues. These habits of virtues can be uplifted by the infused virtues towards love of God, but it really is a gift of God's grace. So how does God heal that rift that entered into humanity through Adam and Eve? He does it through the Holy Spirit, and the way that it works in our lives is through acquired and through infused virtues. Now I'm going to explain acquired virtues. When I say acquired virtues, acquired virtues are moral virtues that you can pick up by just trying to live a good life. So generally when people say that they can be good without God, like I said, they're referring to acquired virtues. Because if you don't believe in God, how can you ever live faith, hope, and love, the infused virtues? Just not possible. Acquired virtues can grow through practice or they can become weaker through abusive lifestyles. Someone who practices sobriety can grow in virtue. Someone who, who abuses alcohol is not going to grow in virtue. We can acquire chastity through disciplines of mind and behavior. Or we can abuse the virtue by behavior that instills in us the vice of lust. So it's custody of eyes, how we think about looking at the opposite sex, what we allow into our heads in movies. These are all things that either... Um, fuel virtue in our life or fuel uh, the opposite of virtue in our life. Sadly, no amount of virtue acquired by effort alone can give us life in Christ because it's always going to be an act of God's grace. Human virtue alone is incapable of bringing us to heaven. This, by the way, was St. Augustine's critique of the Greco-Roman pagan philosophical tradition about the Stoics. What the Stoics believed is that you lived a virtuous life, you could be happy. What St. Augustine essentially said about him, yeah, happy through grit teeth, because the problem of living a virtuous life in this world and looking for reward in this world is it doesn't often come. Being good and gritting your teeth is not what God calls us to. God calls us to put our hopes in a different place uh, in our virtue than just what this world has to offer us. And so to understand why the acquired virtues like justice, temperance, fortitude, um, and prudence can point us in a good direction, it's important to understand about how the infused virtue, virtues will take the moral virtues, whatever they are, and direct them towards union with God. And so I, now I'd like to turn to the infused virtues, which we call the theological virtues. 
So here's what heaven is. Heaven isn't a condo. It's not a really nice car. It's not money in the bank. Heaven is about relationship fundamentally with God and with other people. And so that the moral virtues have to lead us to joy in God and to joy in loving other people. It's why the spirit of God, the spirit of love, has to infuse, breathe life into uh, what would otherwise just be moral duties. For us to live in God's world is to live like a fish lives in the ocean. We live in a sea of grace. Everything is there for our benefit if our hearts are open to God. The infused virtues are the gift that we receive as grace at baptism. And it's the gifts of faith, hope, and charity. No infused version, no infused virtues, no heaven. So the love of God is rooted first in a faithful trust of God. Why the infused virtue of faith is important. Because just think this through. Without trusting in your creator and his will for you, no matter what comes, how can you ever experience heaven? It'll always be something exterior to you. You'll always be blaming God for something, just like Adam and Eve. Remember, God didn't want them to be happy, so he didn't want them to eat the tree of the, eat the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That's the basic problem with Adam and Eve. They don't trust God. Faith is what God puts into our heart, but we have to feed by what we do. And that is taking on directly what the sin of Adam and Eve is. You must know God, however, to love God, for you can't love one who you do not know. Just apply that to anybody that you know. It's a human thing. In order to love, you need to know that person. But here's the thing. In order to know God, you have to first love him. So you have to love God to know him. You have to know him to love him. So you see why this is impossible if someone doesn't lead you through this? And so the importance of the sacraments, the scriptures, and prayer. It's the ordinary means that we grow in terms of love and understanding of God. And that is the key to what transforms us and makes us open to and aware of God's grace and opportunity in our lives. Hope is something else, related but different. St. Paul says that faith is hope realized. That means that hope is the object of faith. So hope in God directs our capacity for virtue, the moral virtues, the infused virtues, to love's proper end. And that's relationship with God, which we call heaven. Hope in God breathes life into our virtues because it roots our virtues in another place where the object, what we are trying to obtain through virtue, is really safe from any corruption that this world has to offer. It's why martyrs can give their life for God. It's why religious and people in marriages that have challenges can give their life to God by living fully the life they're called to live on earth. The moral life reduced to nothing but duty is deadly. Religion is not a box of rules. Love breathes life into our capacity for the virtues and roots our moral behavior in our desire for union with God. Just think of how much eros, this love of desire, um, uh, drives you on. It's why you get married. It's why you go get a job. It's why you try to work and make your kids happy. It's this love of desire that drives us on. And it's hope that appeals to our desires. That leaves us with charity. Charity is to learn to love like God. 
The Father sent his Son for us, and while we were still sinners, we therefore are called to love those who do not love us. Love is to seek the good of another as the other. Love calls us to be charitable to the other in the measure we seek charity for ourselves. We can never pay God back for the gift of existence. We can't make things equal with him. All we can do is show our love for him and grow in love with him by trying to learn to love how he loves. That's why St. Paul says that in the end, faith fades away, hope fades away, because the object of faith and hope are realized. It's love that remains, and that's the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. So when we're baptized, how important it is that we feed that baptismal grace by what we say and do. We have to learn to love God by looking at scripture, by prayer, by the practice of our faith. You know, I wanna leave you with an image of this whole understanding of the spirit, of the virtues, and how this brings us to God or turns us away from God. That's why I'm gonna talk about a great book I'm gonna urge you to read called C.S. Lewis's The Great Divorce. Let's turn to that. C.S. Lewis's book is this imaginative entry into the life of, of hell and purgatory. Heaven is still in the far off mountains. But here's how the story works. There's this gray town that everybody lives in. Once a day, this bus pulls up and anybody who wants to get on the bus can get on the bus. The bus goes up through this little crack and it comes into, into this much bigger world. You get off the bus and there in this grassy place, uh, you meet angels, you meet saints, you meet people you know, and you all start talking about heaven because this is not heaven, this place that C.S. Lewis is talking about. And most of the book is about people still trying to hold on to whatever it is that they think's most important in their life. They wanna take it into heaven with them. But you know, it just doesn't work. The problem with this uh, place where they meet is it's so real that the blades of grass will actually pierce their feet because the problem with not living the virtues of faith, hope, and love is you can't be real enough to enter into God's world. So the bus goes back and as many people apparently get on the bus and go back to this gray town that's on the edge of hell. But hell is this twilight place. It's always like it's sun's going down. Uh, and if you look off into the distance, it just gets darker and darker. The town itself is pretty compact, but then the houses start to spread out like an American suburb. And then looking out even further, the houses are further and further apart until out in the inky darkness, you just see a little twittering light there, another twittering light over there. Uh, the, the author points to one of the most far-flung lights you can see, and he says, that's Napoleon's house. You know, the Brits don't love like Napoleon very much. Well, the thing about it is, is going to heaven is what brings you together in love of God and love of one another. It's how you live at peace. If you're going to have it on your own terms, no matter how nice that little twilight town might be, it's always just going to be a gray place. And that if you have to move away because you can't get along with people, it just keeps getting more spread out, more spread out until really what hell is. It's just you get a rule of your own 
lonely little living room. You're a lonely potato watching nothing but cable TV. And there's a million channels and nothing to watch. That's when you hear the demonic screaming in the background. And so the story today is about the gift of the Holy Spirit. It's the gift of confirmation, which I hope we've all received. If not, come and see me because I know how I can get you this gift of the Holy Spirit. But as we're kind of drawing to uh, whatever is next in this whole pandemic that has separated us, what a great time to think about the infused virtues of faith, hope, and love and how they redirect the moral life of justice, temperance, prudence, and fortitude, and to think about what it would mean when we all get back together. I hope this time of purification has been a happy and healthy spiritual time for you. We're, we'll be talking very, this week about uh, getting together for, in some sense, for the Ascension, and then in another way uh, for Pentecost, but I need to put that plan together. But if you keep in touch with us online, you'll know as much as I know. So God bless you. Thanks for listening to Oro Valley Catholic, and I'll see you next week.